Sloterdijk's Critique of Cynical Reason, Part 1, Sightings, Five Preliminary Reflections. Chapter 1, Cynicism, The Twilight of False Consciousness. Quoting Franz Jung, Die Eroberung des Maschinen, 1921. And indeed, no longer was anyone to be seen who stood behind everything. Everything turned continually about itself. Interests changed from hour to hour. Nowhere was there a goal anymore. The leaders lost their heads. They were drained to the dregs and calcified. Everyone in the land began to notice that things didn't work anymore. Postponing the collapse left one path open. The discontent in our culture has assumed a new quality. It appears as a universal, diffuse cynicism. The traditional critique of ideology stands at a loss before this cynicism. It does not know what button to push in this cynically keen consciousness to get enlightenment going. Modern cynicism presents itself as that state of consciousness that follows after naive ideologies and their enlightenment. In it, the obvious exhaustion of ideology critique has its real ground. This critique has remained more naive than the consciousness it wanted to expose. In its well-mannered rationality, it did not keep up with the twists and turns of modern consciousness to a cunning multiple realism. The formal sequence of false consciousness up to now, lies, errors, ideology, is incomplete. The current mentality requires the addition of a fourth structure, the phenomenon of cynicism. To speak of cynicism means trying to enter the old building of ideology critique through a new entrance. It violates normal usage to describe cynicism as a universal and diffuse phenomenon. As it is commonly conceived, cynicism is not diffuse, but striking, not universal, but peripheral and highly individual. The unusual epithets describe something of its new manifestation, which renders it both explosive and unassailable. The ancient world knows the cynic, better, kinnic, as a lone owl and as a provocative, stubborn moralist. Diogenes in the tub is the archetype of this figure. In the picture book of social characters, he has always appeared as a distance-creating mocker as a biting and malicious individualist who acts as though he needs nobody and who is loved by nobody because nobody escapes his 
crude, unmasking gaze, uninjured. Socially, he is an urban figure who maintains his cutting edge in the goings-on of the ancient metropolises. He could be characterised as the earliest example of declassed or plebeian intelligence. His quote-unquote cynical turn against the arrogance and the moral trade secrets of higher civilization presupposes the city, together with its successes and shadows. Only in the city, as its negative profile, can the figure of the cynic crystallize in its full sharpness, under the pressure of public gossip and universal love-hate. And only the city can assimilate the cynic, who ostentatiously turns his back on it, into the group of its outstanding individuals, on whom its liking for unique, urbane personalities depends. The fertile ground for cynicism in modern times is to be found not only in urban culture, but also in the courtly sphere. Both are dyes of pernicious realism, through which human beings learn the crooked smile of open immorality. Here, as there, a sophisticated knowledge accumulates in informed, intelligent minds. A knowledge that moves elegantly back and forth between naked facts and conventional facades. From the very bottom, from the declassed urban intelligentsia, and from the very top, from the summits of statesmanly consciousness, signals penetrate serious thinking. Signals that provide evidence of a radical, ironic treatment. Ironizierung of ethics and of social conventions. As if universal laws existed only for the stupid, while that Fatally clever smile plays on the lips of those in the know. More precisely, it is the powerful who smile this way, while the cynical plebeians let out a satirical laugh. In the great hall of cynical knowledge, the extremes meet. Eulenspiegel meets Richelieu. Machiavelli meets Rameau's nephew. The loud condottieri of the Renaissance meets the elegant, <coughs> elegant cynics of the Rococo. Unscrupulous entrepreneurs meet disillusioned outside, outsiders. And jaded system strategists meet conscientious objectors without ideals. Since bourgeois society began to build a bridge between the knowledge of those at the very top and those at the very bottom, and announced its ambition to ground its worldview completely on realism, the extremes have dissolved into each other. Today the cynic appears as a mass figure, 
an average social character in the upper echelons of the elevated superstructure. It is a mass figure not only because advanced industrial civilization produces the bitter loner as a mass phenomenon. Rather, the cities themselves have become diffuse clumps whose power to generate generally accepted public characters has been lost. The pressure toward individualization has lessened in the modern urban and media climate. Thus, modern cynics, and there have been mass numbers of them in Germany, especially since the First World War, are no longer outsiders. But less than ever do they appear as a tangibly developed type. Modern mass cynics lose their individual sting and refrain from the risk of letting themselves be put on display. They have long since ceased to expose themselves as eccentrics to the attention and mockery of others. The person with the clear, evil gaze has disappeared into the crowd. Anonymity now becomes the domain for cynical deviation. Modern cynics are integrated, asocial characters on the score of subliminal illusionlessness are a match for any hippie. They do not see their clear evil gaze as a personal defect or an amoral quirk that needs to be privately justified. Instinctively, they no longer understand their way of existing as something that has to do with being evil but as participation in a collective, realistically attuned way of seeing things. It is the universally widespread way in which enlightened people see to it that they are not taken for suckers. There even seems to be something healthy in this attitude, which, after all, the will to self-preservation generally supports. It is the stance of people who realise that the times of naivete are gone. Psychologically, present-day cynics can be understood as borderline melancholics, who can keep their symptoms of depression under control and can remain, more or less, able to work. Indeed, this is the essential point in modern cynicism the ability of its bearers to work, in spite of anything that might happen, and especially after anything that might happen. The key social positions in boards, parliaments, commissions, executive councils, publishing companies, practices, faculties, and lawyers' and editors' offices have long since become part of this diffuse cynicism. A certain chic bitterness provides an undertone to its activity. For cynics are not dumb, and every now and then they certainly see the nothingness to which everything leads. Their psychic, zealish, 
apparatus has become elastic enough to incorporate as a survival factor a permanent doubt about their own activities. They know what they are doing, but they do it because, in the short run, the force of circumstance and the instinct for self-preservation are speaking the same language, and they are telling them that it has to be so. Others would do it anyway, perhaps worse. Thus, the new integrated cynicism even has the understandable feeling about itself of being a victim and of making sacrifices. Behind the capable, collaborative, hard facade, it covers up a mass of offensive unhappiness and the need to cry. In this there is something of the mourning for a quote-unquote lost innocence, of the mourning for better knowledge against which all action and labour are directed. Thus, we come to our first definition. Cynicism is enlightened false consciousness. It is that modernised, unhappy consciousness on which enlightenment has laboured both successfully and in vain. It has learned its lessons in enlightenment, but it has not, and probably was not able to, put them into practice. Well off and miserable at the same time. This consciousness no longer feels affected by any critique of ideology. Its falseness is already reflexively buffered. Enlightened false consciousness. To choose such a formulation seems to be a blow against the tradition of enlightenment. The sentence itself is a cynicism in a crystalline state. Nonetheless, it claims an objective, sachlich, validity. Its content and its necessity are developed in the present essay. Logically, it is a paradox, for how could enlightened consciousness still be false? This is precisely the issue here. To act against better knowledge is today the global situation in the superstructure. It knows itself to be without illusions, and yet to have been dragged down by the power of things. Thus what is regarded in logic as a paradox, and in literature as a joke, appears in reality as the actual state of affairs. Thus emerges a new attitude of consciousness towards quote-unquote objectivity. Enlightened false consciousness. This formulation should be regarded not as an incidental phrase, but as a systematic approach, as a diagnostic model. It thus commits itself to a revision of enlightenment. It must clarify its relation to what is traditionally called false consciousness. Further, it must review the course of enlightenment and the labour of ideology critique 
in whose development it was possible for false consciousness to reabsorb enlightenment. If this essay had historical intentions, it would be to describe the modernization of false consciousness. But the intention here on the whole is not historical, but physiognomic. The focus is on the structure of a reflexively buffered false consciousness. Nevertheless, I want to show that this structure cannot be grasped without localizing it in a political history of polemical reflections. There can be no healthy relation of modern-day enlightenment to its own history without sarcasm. We have to choose between a pessimism that remains loyal to its origins and reminds one of a decadence and a light-hearted disrespect in the continuation of the original tasks. We have to choose between a pessimism that remains loyal to its origins and reminds one of decadence and a light-hearted disrespect in the continuation of the original tasks. As things stand, the only loyalty to enlightenment consists in disloyalty. This can be partly understood from the position of its heirs who look back on the heroic times and are necessarily more sceptical of the results. To be an heir always contains a certain quote-unquote status cynicism with it, as is well known from stories about the inheritance of family capital. The retrospective position alone, however, does not explain the particular tone of modern cynicism. Disillusionment with enlightenment is by no means only a sign that epigonies, 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 epigonies? I've never seen that word before. Okay, apparently it means an inferior imitator. Disillusionment with enlightenment is by no means only a sign that epigonies can and must be more critical than the founders. The characteristic odour of modern cynicism is of a more fundamental nature. A constitution of consciousness afflicted with enlightenment that having learned from historical experience, refuses cheap optimism. New values? No thanks. With the passing of defiant hopes, the listlessness of egoisms pervades. In the new cynicism, a detached negativity comes through that scarcely allows itself any hope. At most, a little irony and pity. In the final analysis, it is a matter of the social and existential limits of enlightenment. The compulsion to survive and desire to assert itself have demoralized enlightened consciousness. It is afflicted with the compulsion to put up with pre-established relations that it finds dubious, 
to accommodate itself to them, and finally even to carry out their business. In order to survive, one must be schooled in reality. Of course, those who mean well call it growing up, and there is a grain of truth to that. But that is not all. Always a bit unsettled and irritable, collaborating consciousness looks around for its lost naivety, to which there is no way back because consciousness raising is irreversible. Gottfried Benn, himself one of the prominent speakers on the structure of modern cynicism, has probably provided the formulation of the century for cynicism, lucid and unabashed, quote, to be dumb and have a job, that's happiness, end quote. But it is the converse of the sentence that really reveals its full content. Quote, to be intelligent and still perform one's work, that is unhappy consciousness in its modernized form, afflicted with enlightenment. Such consciousness cannot become dumb and trust again. Innocence cannot be regained. It persists in its belief in the gravitational pull of the relations to which it is bound by its instinct for self-preservation. In for a penny, in for a pound. At 2,000 marks net a month, counter-enlightenment quietly begins. It banks on the fact that all those have, who have something to lose come to terms privately with their unhappy consciousness or cover it over with engagements. End quote. The new cynicism, precisely because it has lived as a private disposition that absorbs the world situation, does not glaringly draw attention to itself in a way that would correspond to the concept itself. It envelops itself in discretion. As we will soon see, this is a key word for charmingly mediated alienation. The self-cognizant accommodation, which has sacrificed its better judgment to compulsions, no longer sees any reason to expose itself aggressively and spectacularly. There is a nakedness that no longer has an unmasking effect, and in which no naked fact appears on whose grounds one could position oneself with serene realism. There is something lamentable about the neo-cynical accommodation to given circumstances. It is no longer self-confidently naked. For this reason it is also methodologically quite difficult to bring this diffuse, murky cynicism to expression. It has withdrawn into a mournful detachment that internalizes its knowledge as though it were something to be ashamed of. And as a consequence, it is rendered useless for taking the offensive. 
the great offensive parades of cynical impudence have become a rarity. Ill humour has taken its place, and there is no energy left for sarcasm. Galen even thought that today not even the English can be cutting anymore, because their reserves of dissatisfaction have been consumed and the rationing of stocks has begun. The discontent that follows offensives does not open its mouth wide enough for enlightenment to gain anything. That is one of the reasons why, in later chapters, a disproportionate amount of quote-unquote cynical material from the Weimar Republic is cited, in addition to older documents that are also given attention. In the introduction to part five, I attempt a physiognomy of an epoch. Here a decade is characterised whose first descendant was fascism and whose second descendant is us. To speak of the Weimar Republic means, as it always has, to immerse oneself in social consciousness raising. For reasons that can be enumerated, Weimar culture was cynically disposed like scarcely any previous culture. It gave birth to an abundance of brilliantly articulated cynicisms, which read like textbook examples. It experienced the pain of modernization more violently and expressed its disillusionment more coldly and more sharply than the present could ever do. We discover in it superb formulations of modern unhappy consciousness, crucially relevant even today. Indeed, their general validity is perhaps only today really comprehensible. A critique of cynical reason would remain an academic glass bead game if it did not pursue the connection between the problem of survival and the danger of fascism. In fact, the question of survival, of self-preservation and self-assertion to which all cynicisms provide answers, touches on the central problem of holding the fort and planning for the future in modern nation-states. Through various approaches, I attempt to fix the logical locus of German fascism and the convolutions of modern, self-reflective cynicism. This much can be said in advance. In German fascism, the typically modern dynamics of psycho-cultural fear of disintegration, regressive self-assertion, and objective cold rationality combines with a time-honoured strain of military cynicism that on German, and especially Prussian, soil enjoys an equally macabre and deep-rooted tradition. Perhaps these considerations about cynicism, as the fourth configuration of false consciousness, will help to overcome the characteristic speechlessness of genuinely philosophical critique regarding so-called fascist ideology. Philosophy as a quote-unquote discipline has no real thesis about theoretical fascism because it basically considers the latter to be beneath all critique. 
the explanations of fascism as nihilism, Rauschnung et al., or as a product of quote-unquote totalitarian thinking, remain diffuse and imprecise. The inauthentic patchwork character of fascist ideology has already been sufficiently emphasised, and everything it wanted to represent as substantial statements has long since been radically criticised by the individual sciences psychology, political science, sociology, historiography. For philosophy, the programmatic statements of fascism do not even rate as a serious, substantial ideology over which a reflective critique would really have to toil. But herein lies the weak point of critique. It remains fixated on quote-unquote serious opponents. And with this attitude, it neglects the task of comprehending the ideological template of quote-unquote unserious, shallow, quote-unquote, systems. To this day, critique has thus not been a match for this modern blend of opinion and cynicism. But since questions of social and individual self-preservation are discussed precisely in such blends, there are good reasons for concerning oneself with their composition. Questions of self-preservation must be approached in the same language as those of self-destruction, selbstvernichtung. The same logic and the repudiation of morality seems to operate in them. I call it the logic of the, quote, cynical structure, end quote, that is, of the self-repudiation of refined ethics. Elucidating this structure will clarify what it would mean to opt for life.